Enter the Arena coaches women entrepreneurs on how to raise equity finance in the right way so that you can secure the money you need to grow whilst also building long-term value in your business. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown, the founder and CEO of Enter the Arena, a serial entrepreneur and an equity fundraising expert. Here, we share the fundraising stories of female founders who've successfully raised investment to inspire you to do the same. So, if you're looking to raise equity finance, you're in the right place. Today, I'm talking with Savannah Desavery, the founder and CEO of Built ID. Now, Built ID is a very cool tech platform in the property tech sector that allows local communities, property developers, and local authorities to visualize and get feedback and input on property development projects. And I'll, I'll let Savannah tell you more about it in a second. But the reason why it's important is it means that property developers don't just invest in bricks and mortar, they invest in their communities too, which is super important. Savannah graduated from the University of Oxford in 2013 after which she joined Thor Equities, where she managed real estate um, development projects in New York City. So she's got a wealth of experience in this sector. And just two years later, in June 2015, she founded Built ID. Savannah's already won numerous awards and accolades, including Young Entrepreneur of the Year at the Property Awards, Property Week's Power 100, Top 20 Ones to Watch, and one of the Top 20 Prop Tech Influencers Nicole by the UK Prop Tech Association. She's also a regular columnist for Property Week. And to top all of that, Savannah raised uh, two million pounds in equity investment to help her grow the business quite recently and has, has raised in total of almost four million pounds. So um, I'm sure you're all as intrigued as I am to hear more about Built ID and in particular how Savannah raised her investment round. So welcome Savannah, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to see you. So tell us a bit more about Built ID because I'm sure I did a terrible job of explaining it. How did you come up with the idea and, and how does it all work? So I came up with the idea for Built ID just by being in the property industry and growing frustrated with how much of a closed industry it was. It really is an all boys club in many ways and it's pretty opaque. And that frustration grew and I found a Built ID where originally we showcased all of the projects, the leading consultants and developers showcasing their track record. So you could see um, who's behind projects, who you want to work with, what the best precedent is from around the world. And um, a couple of years ago, I was approached by someone from the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government who said, you have all this, you know, all this data that shows examples of how positive property development can be. We have a housing crisis, we're struggling with community engagement is the way you could leverage this to help with that. Um, and I was looking for a way to monetize the platform. I felt very strongly that I shouldn't monetize this, you know, membership database where people can showcase what they do, nor people being able to find them because that would undermine the whole ethos of democratizing the process and making it open to everyone. Um, and so I had a very long train journey to a hen party and I set about thinking up an idea for how we could actually leverage this data and leverage this, you know, visual platform to help with community engagement. And that's what we came up with and we launched it in April and now we're working on around um, 30 projects, which are working to get planning to deliver around 25,000 homes. Um, and on average, we get, you know, around 2000 people in the community voting and engaging and sharing feedback on the development scheme and actually ultimately shaping what gets built in that community. So yeah, it's pretty exciting. That's really amazing. So, can you, what, so t give us an example perhaps of a kind of project that you might work and how the community can influence what that property development looks like. 
Sure. So we work on we work on a range of projects. But so a project in the private sector, we'd be working for a developer, for example, who's trying to build a new mixed use scheme. So maybe they're trying to build housing above and then they have the ground floor where they want some sort of commercial use. So they would use us to find out exactly what the concerns are of the community, what their priorities are, what the neighborhood's currently lacking and then find out what does the community need from that ground floor space? Do they need more retail or do they actually need more community space? Do they need something to help get youths off the streets? What are the needs that will make this actually work for the existing community, not just the incoming sort of residents? Also the public space. Do they need a playground or an outdoor gym? Do they need, do they want a water fountain or actually they want something more practical and functional to be able to go and sit and eat their lunch? Do they want markets being used in that space? What do, they, what do they need to make this uh, you know, a beneficial, productive part of their community? The design, how tall it is, you know, what, what sort of mix of housing it should have, um, whether it should be for you know, young professionals, bigger apartments for families, whether it should be affordable housing. Um, that's all the sort of things that you can shape and influence. Equally, we do the same for the local councils. We're about to launch a project where it's actually about how the council spend the community infrastructure levy, which is the money that they get given by developers you know, in order to be able to develop in that neighborhood. So the idea is that money is meant to go towards building infrastructure for the community and actually letting the community have a say and be empowered to choose how that money is spent. Is it spent on the pavement, on new traffic lights, on, you know, health infrastructure? What does it need? Um, and actually, you know, they're the local experts ultimately and, and giving them the voice to shape what happens. That's amazing. So powerful. And, and, and I know that you have a kind of gamification element to it and a, and a charity angle too. Can you tell me a little bit about that yes so we're a social impact tech company it's very much at the heart of what we do so firstly we work our pricing works per project and we work at a significant discount for the public sector for anyone doing affordable housing and also for ngos who want to build social infrastructure and want to use us to be able to empower a local community who are the recipient of those funds to actually say what they need to be built to make that community better um, we also though make sure that at the heart of the platform is a social impact so the more people vote the more points they accrue so it these game mechanics in order to make it more fun to engage with it and so every time you share feedback or vote on a different option for the scheme you gain a point and at the end you get to donate your points to one of three hyper local social initiatives that the developer or the local council have selected so this could be a local community center it could be you know a sports team it could be repairing a town hall roof it could be whatever you want or a local homeless shelter etc but if if you know, charity A got 62% of the points, they get 62% of the pot of money set aside by the developer or actually a volunteering hours that the developers set aside to go and spend time in that community and actually you know, be, a, be an active presence constructing it. That is super clever. I'm, I absolutely love what you're doing. So, so going back to the beginning, you talked about sort of, you know, you had an idea. Was it, was it you and, and other people? And tell us a bit more about those early days, how you got it off the ground. Because I imagine that the, the start was about building the technology. Yeah, so um, no, I'm a sole founder. And um, when I first came up with the idea, I was um, lucky enough to be having dinner with a female mentor who's one of the few prominent property developers in New York. Um, I think she was trying to set me up with her nephew. Unfortunately, he did not <laughs> a word in edgewise at the table. Um, so said, Look, we've had this idea, what do you think? And she loved it and she said, you know, I could use that for the past 30 years. If you build a prototype, I'll probably invest. I think my CEO would invest. And you know, this, this is something that could really have legs. Um, so I went away and I went to the executive vice president who again was one of the very few um, females in the property industry in a senior position and said, look, I've had this idea. I want to work on it. What do you think? And she said, my advice is that you don't tell anyone else because someone is a great idea and someone else could do it faster and better than you can. 
um, but you have my full support to go and do this in your spare time. As long as it doesn't interfere with your work, go and run with it. So I learned all those sort of, you know, rudimentary skills around sketch and around prototyping and wireframing and everything else to really map out my ideas. And then I was lucky, it's all just about, you know, sort of the, the random coincidence of connections you make. I'd met someone years before in Vegas of all places who just started a fascinating tech company called TopTower, um, where they have, you know, the top freelance talent. And we'd stayed sort of email pen pals. And I emailed him and said, look, I have this idea. I've done this prototype. What do you think? Do you have someone that could help me? And he connected me with an amazing developer who eventually I bought out the contract and he's been with me. So literally since before the company was founded um, and who helped me, you know, design something. And then um, I had to take the leap and raise a sort of friends and family round, but it was more actually property developers who understood the problem, got it and a little bit of friends and family money as well. Um, and then I kept plugging on it late at night on the weekends, whenever I could until it got to the stage where I couldn't do my job as, as you know as well as I should and do this as well as I should at the same time and it was only when really it was like I was being you know really pushed to the limit that I took the leap and was brave enough to to properly start the company so um, I was not one of those amazing founders who you know immediately gives up their job and goes and does it from their garage and you know is very brave I very much was of the conservative ilk of I had the funding in place or enough not enough funding to even have salary enough funding to you know cover the tech costs and um, I had, I immediately moved into one of my investors' offices and I had the structure and it was, it was, it felt a lot safer than, than I think a lot of those amazing stories are. But um, yeah, I was 23. I had no idea what I was doing and it was terrifying, but um, I haven't looked back. Well, I wouldn't necessarily call that conservative. I would call that a kind of quite calculated risk taking, quite sensible approach because you can kind of keep your job going whilst you get something off the ground. At least you've got an income. Um, test and learn you know and then when you feel ready to make that leave I think that's actually quite a sensible strategy to follow um, in my view what's interesting what, what you just said actually Savannah is um, that there were two sort of you know important women who encouraged you to go ahead and do this and said they would back you I mean just interested to see your thoughts on that whether you feel that because it were you're a woman they were women that 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 was what really made that happen had it been a guy in the property industry do you think it would have been different or do you not think that gender something to play in, in that respect it's hard to say i mean i'm not literally only mentioning the women those are the two those were the two defining people who helped me really get this off the ground by giving me giving me the courage and the, and the support that i needed um would they take me under their wing in the same way if i was a man i don't know so i think it can go both ways no i don't think you know the male authority figures around me would have been nurturing me in that way but equally i don't know if those women would have been nurturing a man in that way so I don't necessarily know where that, where that gender comes into play, but certainly their bravery and how amazing they were made a big difference. And my, my parents had no idea what I was doing. were really quite, they're now probably denied but they were very, very sort of reluctant for me to give up my stable job and were very sort of, we don't get it and we don't really understand. And eventually my dad said, look, this woman you're going to be sitting in her office and around, even if she rubs off on you 10%, you're going to have learned so much, it's worth it. Like, I support you. I don't get what you're doing, but I support you on that basis alone. So I think yeah, just having strong figures around you, whether you're a man or a woman, who you can look up to is, yeah, so important. Yeah, really important. And so great to see inspirational women kind of helping female founders too. I love it. Mm -hmm. So, so you've got that kind of initial friends and family and a couple of people from the industry supporting you. So how, how far did that get you from a business perspective and what was the point where you realized okay I'm gonna to have to go out and raise perhaps a bit more serious yeah, only only so far so I that got me to the stage where you know I had a couple of interns who were just doing it from NYU and their spare time for passion and me all plugging away at it and it was really only 
um, when I decided I needed to, you know, properly start hiring people and building a company that I was like, and I need to figure out how to do this fundraising thing. And I was lucky that PyLabs, who were sort of there at the time and sort of quite new prop tech specific VC, um, invited me to join their accelerator in London. And just a few different things that made me think that New York is a hell of a lot of fun, but um, it's a lot more fun when you have no responsibilities. It's less fun when you're trying to start a business and working all hours of the day or night in this transient, you know, culture where everyone's partying and there's new people arriving all the time. And I had no idea who was in my, you know, friendship group anymore because I was always, you know, locked away working. So um, for a lot of different reasons, London made sense. And them inviting me to join that accelerator and give me that structure um, was just a golden opportunity. So I joined them and I managed to just by harassing people nonstop over emails. Um, eventually, one of, my, one of my key investors said that he decided to give me 10 seconds on the phone and I did a pretty good 10 second pitch. And that's when he got me in. And um, I actually didn't realize quite how significant and you know, influential he was in the property industry. I probably should have done more research than I have. <laughs> a pivotal figure who's incredibly well respected. And I think in this industry, to have been in a long time, and for not a single person to have a bad word to say about you, which is what I found when I did my due diligence on, on him, is very rare to have a pristine reputation as someone who's smart and also decent and, you know, is, is, is doing good things very successfully. So I was lucky that he gave me that opportunity. And I think it only honestly happened because I, I kept harassing him. <laughs> and I was lucky. <laughs> it was lucky that I got in that door and I went to that meeting and I hadn't done enough research. So I wasn't as nervous as I should have been. And then he completely ripped my financials apart. I realized I was 23 and had no idea what I was doing. But what he said was the most important thing for him is that unlike most founders he dealt with, who may be a bit more experienced, who always think they know the right way. When he was like, but what about, haven't you, what about if you did it this way? Or have you not considered that? I'd be like, well, that's a good point. Actually, maybe we should consider that. And maybe that would be a bit great. So it was actually in a lot of ways, it was my, I was, I was humbled because I had to be, because I really didn't know anything. Mm. Um, that is what made a difference is I was willing to learn from him, made it something that he was interested in. Um, and yeah, like to see, they like to see that you're open to conversation, to discussion, and it's good to have a, a clear view of what you want to build, but also be open to, to people's skills and experience to add into that. Absolutely. Sometimes you might end up discounting that idea, but at least to consider it, I think investors want to see that. Exactly. Yeah. And I had a very clear vision and what he loved is he was like, you have an incredibly clear vision. You're A, you want to get to B you think you're going to do this, you'll actually do this and wiggle your way there. But I like the fact that you're willing to learn and improve. And actually it did get, and I was like, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, no, 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 you don't, you don't know me. I would not wiggle. I'll be going straight from A to B. And it got to the stage where I went to hire after that very successful seed round when I got, you know, he then introduced me to some other people and I got great, great investors on board and quite a like nice small cap table of just strategic people. Um, when it came next time to raise, and I still hadn't monetized, because that's what I'd always said, I, I wasn't gonna monetize, I was a data player, we're gonna keep gathering that data. Um, and I was like, you know what, the market's changed. We're no longer in that place where, you know, Silicon Valley vibes, you can raise tons of money on data, a data player loan with no intention of monetizing any time in the near future. And I thought back to that original conversation, I thought I've got to walk into this office with them and I have to say, look, I think I had the wrong strategy. And I think I need to, um, you know, sort of not pivot, but repurpose and actually think about how we monetize this. And I, it was that conversation that really came into my mind when I thought that's what he liked about me. And when I said, look, what you liked about me is that I was adaptable. That was the big word you used. I was adaptable and I was willing to adapt and to learn. I'm adapting. I've learned. And please back me to do this. And I, I believe this is the way to do it. I think community engagement is only becoming more important. Planning is becoming more political. This is a space that's going to blow up in the next couple of years, which is exactly what it's now done. Um, thank God. <laughs> and, um, 
and please, please back me to do this. And so they, they did a, you know, sort of put some more money in for me to build the technology to do the community engagement on top of that layer on top of what we were doing. Um, and I'm so grateful because then when it came time to raise this time, we were oversubscribed and we had all the metrics and we were on the right track and God, the difference when you're on the right track of fundraising versus trying when you're not is, um, yeah, it was, it was a really dark, stressful time. And I did think back to that original funding conversation and what are your strengths? And it's not always being right. Sometimes your strength is knowing when are you being, um, are you being stubborn because you are resilient and you're willing to fight through? And there's so much of this whole, you know, sort of culture and startups of being like, you have to be willing to work like 90 hour weeks and you're always grinding and no one believes in you, but you keep on going. That's what I thought I was doing. But actually what I was doing was actually letting my ego play a part and wanting my original pristine vision not to change, not have to do that tax, you know, sort of that tacking and jiving during, during getting to B from A. Um, and that was probably the most pivotal moment of my journey is realizing that ego and resilience are not the same thing. Yes, that's very, very astute of you, actually. A couple of other points I picked up there. I mean, you said about hustle. I mean, you, you've got to hustle. You've got to get kind of comfortable with, with just banging on doors and being prepared to get no's, haven't you? That's and I'm really not good at it, if I'm honest. Um, actually, Nick, Nick Lesler, one of my investors, he was voted like number one on the Property Week Power List. Um, and in it, they talked about how he'd invested in Built ID as one of, the, you know, one of the key things he'd done that year. And he said, you know, I, I backed Savannah and I love her because she's, got, she's, a, she's a hustler. And I read it and I was like, that's a bit insulting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, I don't know if I like the thought of being called a hustler. Uh, I, it, it tears my soul apart. I hate asking for things. Fundraising is my worst nightmare. I've been into so many fundraising meetings where I've not had the heart to say, are you interested in investing? And instead of being like, thank you so much for your advice. Good day. Um, I really, it doesn't come naturally to me, but it's, you're right. It's key. You can't get anywhere without it. Can't get away from it. And to be honest with you, the more you do it, the, the more comfortable you get, right? Yeah. And the other thing you said, which I think is um, worth sort of pointing out, is this thing about the 10 second pitch and how critical that is, because you just never know when you're going to meet someone interesting. And like you said, you didn't really know this, this guy was super influential in the property sector and, inve and investment when you did that. So and I, I, I speak to so many entrepreneurs who um, struggle with that 10 second pitch. And I think you've got to get that absolutely bang on. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's something that I went through, God, typing up so many different versions and what was I going to say and how was I going to get across it? And I think there can't be one. So if you're, I knew at least, if I didn't realize how successful he was, I knew that he was a property, you know, magnet. I knew he was in that industry. And therefore I went for, this is the pain point. So immediately in that first sentence, there's a nod of, that's right, that is a pain point, And this is how we're going to transform it. Um, and I think a mistake that I often have to control myself from making is that I'm so passionate about my product and I love it so much that I want to spend hours tattling on about the product itself. What people actually care about is what are you solving and what are the outcomes? The actual product itself isn't as interesting to other people as it is to you, which was a heartbreaking thing to realize. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very, very easy as an entrepreneur to kind of get carried away with talking about your baby and how beautiful your baby is and amazing and all the features and the colors and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Nobody, nobody gives a monkey's. Yeah. Like, what's in it for me? What's yeah. the outcome? Not, everyone, not only the outcome for an investor, but the outcome for your customers and your clients. Really? It's all about the KPIs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Interesting. And, and in terms of, I mean, given that you've got a kind of social angle to your business, did you, did you come across any challenges on that with raising investment? Or was that actually something that helped you 
with your with your story do you think i don't know if it, at this stage i don't know if it's i don't think it helped or hindered i do think that in the past it would probably have made people raise their eyebrows and increasingly especially in the property industry you know sort of social impact and corporate social responsibility is becoming far more important and it's now actually a topic of conversation at most conferences where even two years ago it was an afterthought um so i do think we're at the right time to be prioritizing that um i wouldn't say it really helped in this round but i think that um in the future, I, I hope it will become more important and it will be more valuable that that's something that we, you know, we really stick to and we really fight for it as well. Not everyone wants to have that social impact side. And for us, it's like a, you take us with it or you don't take us at all. You have yeah. to be choosy about clients. I think investors generally are getting more interested in that because they know that that's what consumers and businesses are interested in. It's really, Absolutely. it's really taking off. And it feels like now there isn't very little that's just a social impact business because every business is starting to embrace that. It's becoming... The benchmark you know the the entry level point absolutely so so you've done sort of quite a few sort of a number of kind of small rounds and then was your let's talk about the last round which was a was a chunkier one i would uh, still say it's sort of a bridge round so it was two million yeah. but it's still sort of like a baby bridge so our seed round was a proper round um where we raised with like 1.1 um and before that, we'd raised, you know, some, some money in dollars and we've raised a bit since in terms of, but from an internal round. So it's our first external round since our seed one. Um, and like I said, we're very, very fortunate to be oversubscribed for it. But it was really about choosing the right strategic partners to get us to the point where we do a proper round. Yeah. Um, so we didn't take all the money that was offered because we just needed that bump as such to get us into, you know, 18 months time. We're ready for international expansion on, on a major scale and knowing that we had the right partners in place for that. So one of our investors is Mott McDonald, who are an international engineering firm who work, um, I think around like 150 offices around the world. And for me, what was really interesting is not just that they have that scale and they can roll us out for their clients in all those markets, but also that they'd actually already done a, a exercise they've gone to their 30 biggest clients around the world and said what are the key challenges facing your business that you need to help addressing what do you what, what what's what's facing you and one of the ones they identified was community engagement so before they ever even knew we existed so that's why they approached us it's because they'd already identified that the problem we were solving was the problem their clients were facing and so for me they were just a no-brainer as an investor to have someone who's aligned with what you're trying to achieve rather than just with a financial return for me, that made them 10 times more appealing than a traditional VC. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for most of our female founders listening, I'm sure they would die to be in the position of being oversubscribed for a round, right? If so it helped my previous client, <laughs> client, it was absolute hell, and I wanted to cut up into a ball and never say <laughs> again. And I was miserable. I really can't. I think it's so easy for us to focus on like the positives and the successes and how great we are and forget that like, I find it much more comforting rather than hearing something inspirational about someone doing well at something to hear. They also had those moments where they're like, I am worthless and I'm never going to make this work. And oh my God, all these people have put their trust in me, both employees and investors. And I don't know if I'm going to, you know, be able to make it into all the amazing potential it has. Um, so no, it's, it's, it's a great position to be in, but by no means do I take it for granted. It can just as easy as it goes up, it can go down again. Um, and hopefully up again and down again. Up again. Um, but so yeah. On that last, on that, on that sort of earlier round where you felt like sort of curling up into a ball and dying, how did you deal with that? How did you deal with those ups and downs in the process? Terrible at fundraising. I just couldn't, 
I didn't have any connections. I didn't know how to open those doors. I was sending cold emails to VCs who obviously all ignored them. Every time I did meet with someone, they either only invested at seed round or they only invested at series A. And I was this ugly duckling between the two where I had too much traction really to be seed, but I, but I hadn't monetized, so I didn't have enough to be series A. Um, and it was just soul destroying. And I think, I, I don't think I did crack it. And I think this time I, I got lucky. Um, mm. And I, I made sure that I worked like hell. I knew what I needed to get in terms of traction before I started fundraising. And um, I just had to steal myself and, you know, get all my loins to ask people for introductions. And I hate doing that, but you have to. But maybe you learned a lot of mistakes in that first round that you then put into practice now. I mean, I think... Yeah, which were kind of like, suck it up. <laughs> but it's a, it's a common story. And I think it's, it, you know, when you look at kind of back at the, some of the things you might have done differently, you know, in terms of speaking to the right people or getting the confidence to, 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 to ask for intros, all those kind of things, you know, if you were to go back and do it again, what do you think you would do differently? Would you? I would do what I did, which was the real turning point for me, which was get a professional coach and it's expensive, um, but it is worth every penny. So I see my professional coach once a quarter and she is incredible. Um, and I probably rely on her way more than I should for far more than just business. But, um, just having someone, especially as a solo founder, it's very lonely and you have to bear that responsibility and, and those, um, those stresses yourself because your team needs to stay focused on you know, delivering results and, and feeling like they're going in the right direction. So um, it's very, very lonely and your friends can't really get it. They want to and they, they're sympathetic, shoulders to lean on, but you can only lean so much. And having someone there to bounce off and to understand the different like, logic behind the decisions I was making and, and you know, where, I, where I wanted to go um was really really important and it's not like they tell you the answers they just help you figure out what you already probably knew deep down um and so yeah that's what i would do differently is i would invest in a personal coach professional coach sorry far earlier than i did and i did a quarterly before my board meeting it's not like it's a regular thing and um every time i go into that board meeting more prepared and ready to smash it because i've seen her yeah that's brilliant i mean obviously i would clearly con concur with that being a fundraising coach myself you know and i think if you can find somebody to support you through that process and shortcut things. And I mean, it's not, as you say, it's not just about understanding how it all works and, and helping you with the skills to do it, but it's about that sounding board, isn't it? Along the way. So that you, because it's a lonely, it is, I mean, it's a lonely place for running a business at the best of times. Never mind when you're in the middle of a fundraise, it is yeah. really, really challenging. And it's just into questions like, why are you, why do you hate asking people for money? Why do you hate asking people for help full stop? You know, all those things like, what's the worst that can happen is they say no. And is that so bad? Is it not worse than feeling like a failure because you never picked up the courage to ask? Um, yeah, I couldn't recommend having people to help coach you in those, in those tough times and the good times more. I think just as much in the good. So, um, I mean, I know that you mentioned at the beginning that the property sector is a very male-dominated industry. Did you find that also when you were speaking to investors? I was just intrigued to know, you know, whether you didn't meet many female investors along the way and whether you saw a difference between um, speaking with the guys, speaking with the female investors, or, or did, you, did you feel there wasn't a difference? To be honest, I think for me, because I've spent my whole career in a male-dominated industry and been nearly always the only woman around the table, um, I was pretty well-versed in, in speaking to, to men and having to sell it in the, in the way you have to do to them. I think there's now female-centric um, VCs popping up, which is fantastic, and I think that's awesome. And I actually think Albright is obviously where we first connected, and I thought that's an amazing initiative that they ran these pitch days for female founders, and it was the most supportive environment. And I walked out of it being like, that was awesome. 
Um, and that made a real difference to my confidence, if nothing else. You know, I didn't actually end up going for any of the investment that was interested out of that. But just like the confidence of being like, there's this like sisterhood, even if you don't always see it, is awesome. Um, I think it's worth noting that both property and tech is not just male dominated. It's also, you know, sort of dominated by people who are from white middle class backgrounds. Um, so I think that I didn't have to deal with a lot of the challenges and struggles that a lot of women trying to fundraise have to deal with. And I'm very cognizant of that. Um, so no, for me, I don't think it made a difference, but probably just because I've never known any different. I've never worked in a female dominated industry or even like a, you know, sort of <laughs> well-represented industry. I think that's a theme that I've definitely seen over the last year doing all these podcast interviews is that those women who have come from a background where they have been used to working in a male dominated industry don't see um, it being a challenge as much as those women who've come from a background where they're just not used to dealing with, with men. And I'm really, I'm really seeing that as a very strong theme that's coming out. Um, I mean, have you got any advice to give to those women who might see it as being more intimidating? How could they go about it differently so they don't let this idea that being a female founder will hold them back? Honestly, I don't really know what the recipe for success is. I think that, um, like I said, I think the fact that there are more female-centric VCs cropping up is a really good thing. So at least then you can help get, you know, female founders' confidence up to go into those more male-dominated environments. I think that we always, you know, you do to an extent, sadly, have to put on a bit of a persona um, and, you know, maybe portray a sense of confidence and assertiveness that you don't feel. Um, I'm a big believer in faking it till you make it, and I still don't think I've made it. I'm still faking it. Um, and I think that's being comfortable with that. Um, so no, I don't think any of that is probably very useful advice. <laughs> I don't know. I wish someone would tell me. It's tough, isn't it? I mean, I mean, do you have any kind of thoughts as to a couple of things that you would say to people, advice about how to go out and approach a fundraising round? I think you have to leave your ego and your sense of shame at the door um, and be willing to ask people for, you know, for in intros and to help you meet people that you, you know, it makes you feel about uncomfortable asking. Um, you have to just buck up and do it. I think, I think being really well prepared before you start already having your five year financial projections done and also making sure they're realistic. I think you've got to go in. I think the difference this round is I went into the mentality of, I know where we're going. I know what we're doing. And if you don't want to be part of this journey, then you're not the right investor for me rather than I'm not the right investee for you. And I think having that mentality shift, again, fake that mentality if you don't have it yet, um, made a huge difference. You know, mm -hmm. being able to say, I, I know, I'm, I'm open to ideas, but equally, I know what our key metrics are and what we're working towards. And if that doesn't align with your fund and where it's going and what you need to get out of it. You know, I met with one VC who was really keen and she was like, but could you, I used to just tweak the financials to say it's like 200 year on year growth or something. I was like, but that's not what I'm projecting. She's like, no, but I need that obviously for the, you know, for the, um, the DD. And I'm like, but that's, that's not realistic. Are you then going to be holding me to those projections? That actually what you're then going to be expecting, accepting that you're not the right business for everyone, I think is another way to make the process a lot less painful. Mm, that mindset shift. I think it's fundamental. Absolutely. To me, you get that mindset right about who you are, where you're going, what you're trying to achieve and, see it as finding investors that fit with that rather than feeling like you're going with a begging bowl it just makes all the difference absolutely exciting so what is next for built id where are you taking it next do you think you're gonna i mean you mentioned doing another raise how is that going to be on the agenda for 2020 or do you think it's going to be a bit no, certainly not for 2020 so 2020 is all about consolidating our position 
considering to deliver fantastic results and you know working on all the highest profile projects to let communities have more of a voice so we have a very clear mission statement we know where we want to go and we know that in 18 months time we want to be ready to you know have the proof points already internationally to roll this out on a global scale um, and be the go-to platform for engaging communities in whatever context so um yeah no we're, we, we we know where we're heading and the team is scaling fast and that's kind of scary if i'm honest but um i think as long as we can hand hold on to that ethos of who we are that we're underdogs we're we're we're, we're hustlers we're, we're we'll, we'll go 110 percent every single day on everything we do and to deliver the best results for our clients and having that sense of responsibility those are the big things that i'm more concerned about focusing on in 2020 the business is growing kind of its of its own accord now which is great but that will stop if we don't keep those fundamental cultural principles alive yeah it's scary isn't it i think a lot of people think that once they've raised investment all their problems are over it <laughs> just yeah they just, just on to the next the next level of challenges which all come thick and fast don't they once you reach to scale yeah, good. Well, I wish you all the best. Uh, super so nice. I love what you're doing. Um, it's great to see a female founder doing something really innovative in the prop tech sector. And um, I'm sure you're on the path for global domination very soon. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Simone. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for following Fundraising Stories with Women Entrepreneurs. This content is all provided to you for free. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, please make sure you subscribe to the full podcast so that you never miss another one. If you'd like professional support making sure your fundraising campaign is successful, here's what I want you to do. Head to entertheareena.co.uk forward slash apply and book your fundraising discovery session. We'll get on the phone and get you crystal clear on three things. One, how investors will perceive your business and your plan to make sure your offer and pitch is as strong as it possibly can be. Two, your ideal fundraising strategy and the investors that you should be speaking with. And three, your step-by-step -step action plan for making sure your fundraising campaign is a success. Remember, raising equity finance successfully doesn't happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make sure it happens. We've helped hundreds of women entrepreneurs on their journey to successful equity fundraising. Women who've raised six-figure sums in investment to scale their amazing businesses and make a real difference in the world. To see if we can help you do the same, head over to www.entertheareena.co.uk forward slash apply. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown and I look forward to talking with you soon.